you guys are brave. And I want to thank you for, yeah, here comes another brave one. Thank you so much for coming up and letting me share a couple things with you. Oh, yeah. We're, we keep growing. That's awesome. Hey, how many of you come from a family? <laughs> do you all come from a family? Yeah. Sure you do. How many are in your family? Four? How about you? Five? Awesome. Five also. How many are in your family? Oh, it's okay. You don't, you don't have to answer. <laughs> Anybody want to tell me? Huh? You don't know? <laughs> well, you know, there were, at one time, I want to tell you a little bit about my family. There were seven people in our family just for a little while. And, and, and the family changed. But this is what we looked like about, oh, 1959. And, oh, look at, how many do you count there? Seven. Yeah, there were seven of us. And the, the lady in the dark, in the black uh, top is my sister, Pat. And that's me standing next to her, believe it or not. Can you believe that that's me? I don't look anything like that anymore, do I? Yeah, I've gotten old. Yeah, that's for sure. And then the, the fellow, well, the, actually, there's a little girl uh, in a yellow dress. She's sitting there uh, in between me and Pat. And her name was uh, Melanie. And then my brother Paul is right in the center. He's the one hamming it up there. He's got the the big bright eyes, and then my brother Don is right behind him, and he's a little bit older than me, Paul's a little bit younger, and then Valerie is the little girl sitting in the checkered dress, and then my sister Peg is on the far end. But that was all five of the Duncans, and we, we just uh, had a nice little family. We lived in a pretty small house, and we didn't have a lot of room, but um, you know, I've got a, I brought another picture of our family that I wanted to share with you today, too. Oh, what happened? Oh, we're all, we all look different, don't we? Yeah, and there's only five of them. And, and uh, that's because the two little girls in the first picture didn't stay with us uh, for a long time. They were there for a little while, but then they, they went away. And, well, it's, it's a long story. But um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about it maybe, um, maybe one of these days. Maybe next time I'll tell you about it. But they're, they're okay. It, it wasn't a bad story. It was just a kind of a strange situation. But that's me on the bottom with the sunglasses and my brother Don in the middle and, of course, my brother Paul on the end. Paul was a doctor. Don was a truck driver. I was a pastor. And my sister Pat is right in the middle there. She was the one that had the black top on in the first uh, picture. And she ended up being the vice president of a bank in Florida. And my sister Peg is standing next to her in the black dress. And she was a nurse. She was an RN. And so we all grew up. And, and we all changed a lot. And, you know, you guys will grow up too. You'll have family pictures someday to look back on, and you'll say, I can't believe that was me. I don't look like that, anything like that anymore. Because that, that kind of change just comes. It happens. And, and it's not a bad thing. This is the way God planned it. 
And so I just want to uh, remind you today to be thankful to God for your family. I love all my brothers and sisters, and, and I just I thank God for them and for the place that they have in, in our lives. And, uh, and I hope you can thank God today for your brothers and sisters and for your mom and dad and everybody else in your family too. Okay? Let's pray. We thank you for uh, the, the gift of family. And we thank you that um, you have put us together. Not, not a one of us has been misplaced. Everyone is exactly Father. Hearts that appreciate and love those people in our family as we grow older together and as we experience the changes in life. May you be glorified in all that comes and in all we do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Okay, now we're done. And you guys can get up and do you have children's church now? Okay, okay, very good. Very good. I hope that it's all right with with you if I ask you, if you can, to uh, stand with me once again for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to be reading our text for today, which comes from the book of Acts, uh, beginning in verse 1 of the 15th chapter. I'll be reading verses 1 through 5. Some men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to reveal the truth that you have for us today from this portion of your Holy Word. And I pray, God, that our hearts and our minds would be open and that we would learn from you today and we would all be conformed more faithfully to the image of your Son as a result of the time we spend together in this place. And this will give you the praise and the glory for in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I have entitled this message, All in the Family. I remember Lindsay, uh, when I sent her the, the title to the message, she asked me, are, are you sure you're supposed to have a question mark there? I said, yes, I'm sure. Um, because uh, family is a beautiful thing, but it's not always um, 
a comfortable thing or an easy thing. This was made abundantly clear back in the 1970s. If any of you were around in the 1970s, and I think some of you might have been, you were probably uh, going to remember a TV sitcom that is considered by many people to be the best one ever. Um, one writer described it this way. He said, All in the Family is about a working-class white family living in Queens, New York. Its patriarch is Archie Bunker, played by Carol O'Connor. He is an outspoken, narrow-minded man, seemingly prejudiced against everyone who does not like him or his idea of how people should be. His wife, Edith, is sweet and understanding, though somewhat naive and uneducated. Edith's husband, Archie, sometimes disparagingly calls her dingbat. Their one child, Gloria, played by Sally Struthers, is generally a kind and good-natured person like her mother, but she displays traces of her father's stubbornness and temper. Unlike her parents, she is a feminist. Gloria is married to graduate student Michael Stivick, played by Rob Reiner, and uh, he is referred to as Meathead by Archie. Um, Michael's values represent a real clash between the, um, the values of the greatest generation and the values of the baby boomers. And these two couples uh, are often engaged in that, in that clash. Uh, for much of the series, the Stivics live in the bunker's home to save money, and that provides lots and lots of opportunities for them to get on each other's nerves and irritate each other. No. That doesn't happen really, does it? Yeah, I'm afraid it does. All in the Family ran for nine seasons. It produced five spinoffs, and along the way, the family did its share of loving and fighting, debating, arguing, rejoicing, grieving. And to that end, the program portrayed family life as we all know it really is. It's sometimes exciting, other times mundane, boring. It's frustrating oftentimes and makes us anxious. Other times, it's disappointing, and sometimes even heartbreaking. But always, always, family is in a state of change, a state of flux, uh, and the struggles that are the result of that change are inevitable in life. There's no way we can get around it. The book of Acts from which I just read, describes family life in a different kind of family. This is the family of God. This is the people of God and the church. And I was, uh, I was getting ready for my uh, message and preparing this and studying uh, up for the message. I was surprised to find a commentator who said that um, the, um, the church was really... Uh, it experienced smooth sailing in the very beginning. Now, 
I understand in one sense why he said this, because Luke records that there, uh, there was, as a result of Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost, how many people were saved? 3,000. That's church growth. Big time. And just a few days later, Peter preached again, and the number increased to 5,000. So the church is growing exponentially. This is just an explosive kind of growth. And the uh, commentator that I read said, Acts 15 is a record of the first internal dissension which occurred in the Christian church. This history, however, is particularly important as it is the record of the first unhappy debate which arose in the bosom of the church. Now, I don't know what Bible he was reading, but my Bible records a lot of rough spots leading up to chapter 15. For instance, in chapters 4 and 5, Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel. In chapter 5 also, Ananias and Sapphira were exposed and executed by the church. Actually, by God. Exposed by the church, executed by God. In chapter 5 also, the apostles were flogged publicly for teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. In chapter 6, there was a conflict that arose between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Jews over the distribution of food during the, the, the church's meetings. Stephen, in chapter 7, one of the first deacons, remember what happened to him? You guys have been working through this, right? What happened to Stephen? He was stoned to death. That's right. And in chapter 8, we're, we're told that a great persecution broke out against the church. In 11, the church was scattered. And so they went out in all directions, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that, that uh, they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. They just scattered in all directions to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and particularly to Antioch. And Antioch rap rapidly sort of became the, the new seat of the evangelical church. Jerusalem was still the mother church. Jerusalem was where the apostles were. But Paul and Barnabas began to use the city of Antioch as their base of operations as the church began to grow even more. In chapter 12, one last bit of uh, persecution, well, not last bit, but another, another bit of persecution before we get to chapter 15. In chapter 12, Peter was arrested and James, the apostle, was executed. So I wouldn't say exactly that this was smooth sailing, would you? I think the church then was experiencing some pretty severe hardships. Yes, God was working in them and among them, but it was not uh, smooth sailing. It was not pain-free by any means. And in chapter 13, there's a new kind of pattern that emerges. You know, when, when uh, Paul and Barnabas went out to, to spread the gospel, there was, a, there was kind of a, a predictable sequence of events that would happen when they would come into a town. The first thing they would do is they would go to the synagogue. And they would stand up and they would preach in the name of Jesus. 
And that would usually cause an uproar. And then the, the people would throw them out of the synagogue and they would go and preach to the Gentiles and the Gentiles would say, oh, really, really? And they would accept and believe this gospel that, the, that the Paul and Barnabas were, Barnabas were preaching. And, and then the next thing that would happen would be there would be a clash between the Gentiles and the Jews and Paul and Barnabas would be run out of town. And so they would go on from that town to the next town. And they would go to the synagogue. And then they would get thrown out of the synagogue and they would go out into the streets and they would preach the gospel again and they would get run out of that town. And they were just bouncing from one place to another experiencing resistance in many cases in the synagogues. Not always, but most of the time, most of the people in the synagogues were resisting the gospel. Why? Because it seemed to be that they were saying that the law of Moses no longer had sway, no longer uh, had authority over the Jewish people. And of course, that was not quite what they were saying, although they were, they were understanding a part of this. But after a while, when Paul and Barnabas went around to, from one town to the next, uh, we, we see a new pattern developing. Look at me, or look with me in your, in your Bible, if you have it open to uh, Acts 13, and I'm kind of taking a running start at Acts 15, in verse 45, it says that in the, uh, in the synagogue, where is it here? Um, the next Sabbath, verse 44 says, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. And this is in Antioch. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was speaking, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles for so the Lord has commanded us saying, I made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Look at verse 50. It's right in the very next birth. But the Jews. There's this pattern of that phrase just keeps popping up throughout uh, this, this section. In chapter 14, uh, in verse 2, when they were in Iconium, we read, but the believing Jews. In chapter 14, verse 4, the, the city, Iconium, was divided. Jews versus the apostles. In Lystra, 1419, the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. They left him for dead. And in 1420, we read that after a brief and successful journey to Derby, Paul and Barnabas retraced their steps back to Antioch, having completed the first missionary journey endeavor. Chapter 15, then, begins and ends with accounts of the church dealing with internal conflict. Now, 
I want to give you a little bird's eye view of that, and, and it, only, it will only take a second. Um, but it's important for us to kind of have a general understanding of what's going on in chapter 15. There is a conflict that arises in verse 1, and then there is another conflict that arises in uh, verse 39. The first conflict is very different from the second one. The first one is a doctrinal conflict. They're arguing over something that is very, very significant and very important, and we want to nail that down this morning. But the second conflict, the conflict that arose between Paul and Barnabas, didn't have anything to do with doctrine. This was a personal dispute. I won't be talking much about the personal dispute, and you can read it uh, on your own if you want, but, but I, I do want to say that in the first part of Acts 15, there were men who came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Now, almost every translation that I looked at says that some men came down. It doesn't identify them as Pharisees. It doesn't identify them as, as Jews necessarily. It just says some men. And the Greek is equally uh, sort of uh, ambiguous. It, it's not specifying what kind of men they were, although we can probably uh, glean from this that they were Jewish men. But they don't have any authority they, they act as though they do, but they really don't have any authority. And that's why um, we can read in, in uh, chapter 15 in, uh, oh, where is this? Oh, um, when they write the letter, uh, it's in, it's in uh, verse, I think, 23. Uh, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, uh, to the church who are in, uh, of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Look at verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we what? We gave them no instruction. They weren't doing this at our behest. They were doing it on their own. And the letter goes on to explain what the conflict was about. These guys came down totally on their own from Judea to Antioch and they were teaching this. They were teaching the brothers that unless they are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they cannot be saved. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the doctrine of salvation by works. Now, you have to understand that at this point, the, the future of the church, the character, the nature of the church is hanging in the balance. Because if the, if the church caves in to these men and says, yes, we must obey the law of Moses, they, basically they were saying, if, if you want to become a Christian, you have to first become a Jew, and you've got to conform to the Jewish law, and then after you've done that, then you can become a follower of Jesus Christ. And the, the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, were saying, oh no, that's, that's not the way it is at all. We are saved by what? By faith and by grace. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. 
not by works, Ephesians 2 says. And yet, this idea that we are saved by works, that somehow we can make ourselves right in the, uh, in the eyes of God by our human effort is still very much alive and well today. Several years ago, I had a dispute with a man. This was back when I was still pastoring the church in Laura, and I had a dispute with a man who was telling his sister um, that, and his sister was a, a lady who came to our church. He was telling his sister that we were a false church and that I was a false teacher. Even though he had never heard me preach, he had never spoken with me, um, but he had already made up his mind that we were not the real deal, that we were phony Christians and we were a phony church. Or, uh, you know, uh, uh, let's see, what's the word I want? This, this is what happens when you turn 70. Sometimes, sometimes words just sort of get wings and fly away. Um, but yeah, the, he, he didn't think that we were, that's the word, a legitimate church. We were illegitimate. And she told me about this, so I, I, I went to him, or, or rather I told her, I said, you know, I'd like to talk to your brother. Let's get together and talk about this. Uh, I'd like to know why he thinks this about me and why he thinks this about our church. And so we got together, and uh, once we got together, spoke for a couple hours, and he, he made his case, and, and I kind of listened and tried to figure out what I was going to uh, say to him, and then we made an arrangement to get back together again. And the second time we sat down at his sister's kitchen table, I said, Bill, we can, we can make this really short and sweet if you can tell me this. How can a person, a sinner, we're all sinners, how can a sinner be reconciled to God? What does it take this is a question that has been asked in every culture and every generation from biblical times up until today for sure. You remember the rich young ruler in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 10, or uh, Mark 10, excuse me, um, comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does a person have to do to make themselves right with God? I asked him that. Tell me how a person is reconciled to God. And he said, he looked me in the eye and he said, by keeping the rules. And I said, you know, if we could keep the rules well enough to be reconciled to God, then Jesus died on the cross for nothing. For nothing. That's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 2. And I hope you'll follow me and, and just put your finger there in, uh, in Acts 15 and turn back a couple books after the Second Corinthians to Galatians and Galatians chapter 2. Because in Galatians, uh, we read this account uh, in chapter 2 of Paul coming to uh, to debate these men who are who are 
saying the same thing that that uh, you must be circumcised and you must obey the law in order to be saved. And most of the scholars that I read about this said that this account that he that Paul gives in chapter two is actually his account of what happened in Acts fifteen. This is Paul writing about it, and he says, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them. And and he goes on to say what happened during that. And he says, yet, in in verse 4, because of some false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom, uh, the freedom that we have in Christ, um, they were trying to bring us into slavery. This is... This is Paul saying, these guys who are telling the church at Antioch, you must be circumcised and obey the law of Moses, they are not members of the family, not believers. Even though down later in the passage, uh, in verse 5, it says, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, uh, it's necessary to... So, okay, the question comes... Were they part of the family? Or were they not part of the family? Um, I want to suggest to you this morning that they were not part of the family. Now, why do you say that, Kurt? Well, I'll tell you why I say that. Because in John chapter 8, and and you don't need to go there necessarily, but um, let me just share with you from John chapter 8 real quick. Um, Jesus is speaking to the Jews and these are Jews that John says have believed him at some level. They recognize that he is not a regular man, like just an, you know, any, any old person. They recognize that he is uh, special, but they aren't ready to accept him as the son of God. And so, uh, Jesus tells these men in John chapter 8 and verse 47, whoever is of God, here's here's the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is is that you are not of God. You don't belong to God, he says. And that's why you don't understand the words that I'm saying. I believe that the men who were described in Acts 15, who had come down and were laying this legalism trip on the church, were not true believers at all. They were actually trying to drive a wedge between the the Gentiles and the Jews. Well, one writer put it this way. Um, They were attempting to mix law and grace and to pour the new wine into ancient brittle wineskins They were stitching up the torn veil and blocking the new and living way to God that Jesus had opened when he died on the cross. They were rebuilding the wall between Jews and Gentiles that Jesus had torn down on the cross. They were putting the heavy Jewish yoke on Gentile shoulders and asking the church to move out of the sunlight and back into the shadows. They were saying... 
basically. A Gentile must first become a Jew before he can become a Christian. It is not sufficient for them simply to trust Jesus Christ. They must also obey Moses. And Paul and Barnabas disputed them vigorously. Now, I know Pastor Nick. I know that Pastor Nick is a faithful man of the word. And I know if you've been listening to him, you've been hearing him say that it's all of Christ and none of us. That's that, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that the good works that we do are the result of the salvation that we've received free of charge. I know that Pastor Nick has been teaching that. And I, I don't want to cover new ground necess- or, or uh, old ground necessarily, but I, but I do want to say that there, are, there might be some people here this morning who are maybe getting this for the first time. Maybe you've never really understood what it takes to be reconciled to God. And I admit, it's, it's really easy. As a human being, it's easy to fall back into the trap of thinking, if I just can kick this habit, or if I can just stop doing this, or change my attitude about this thing or that thing, I will be more pleasing to God. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Lord saved us when we were still his enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's nothing we can do. You know, Isaiah 53 has probably... um, one of the best definitions of sin that I've ever found in the Bible. It simply says, um, for we all, like sheep, have what? Gone astray. Each one has gone his own way. You want to know what sin is? Sin is saying to God, I know you want me to do this, but I'm going to do this. I know you want me to be here, but I'm going to go here. I know you want me to think this and believe this, but I don't, I'm not buying it. I'm going to do something else. That is the essence of sin. And man, it can shape, it can take all kinds of shapes and forms, but, but that is, that is sin in a nutshell. And we've all been guilty of going our own way. We've all been guilty of breaking the commandments of God. Jesus' death on the cross is the only way that our sins can be purged and that we can be forgiven. The Antioch church, in this case, appointed a delegation to take the issue up to Jerusalem. And they were sent on their way by the church, verse 3 says, and the church financed the trip. That's basically what it means when it says that they were sent on their way. So they made their way through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and this made everybody happy. All the brothers were were rejoicing when they heard this. They arrived in Jerusalem, and they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. They rolled out the the, the welcome mat for them, and and uh, Paul and Barnabas started declaring all that God had done with them. 
And then the argument surfaces again. Some believers, it says, and, and again, these are pseudo-believers. I don't believe that these are true, truly converted people. If, if they were truly converted people, they would already know that the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, right? If they were really born again, they would realize, as Isaiah says, that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in his sight. Not our sins. The very best we can do to make ourselves presentable to God. Uh, It's like filthy rags in God's sight. These guys weren't there yet. And so they presented this work-based works-based argument. And, and actually, it gets a little worse here in verse 5 because it says it's necessary, necessary, it cannot, it's not optional, it's mandatory to circumcise them, that's the first thing, and secondly, to order them to keep the law of Moses. And a little bit later, Peter says, in, in verse 10, he says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. You're putting them back under the law. Nobody can keep the law. Nobody has ever kept the law except for the Lord Jesus. So this is the the conflict that the church was getting ready to deal with there. Um, Russell asked me a little bit ago if I'd been at Laura for 28 years. Yeah, uh, 28 years in the same pulpit. And um, I saw a lot of changes come and go in that time. The church changed a lot in that time. I changed a lot. Um, why? Well, because that's just the way life is. Things change. That cute little family that you saw with the people sitting on the di- or the ironing board there uh, is is now a bunch of old people retired and and uh, looking forward to the day the Lord calls us home. Um, <clears throat> change happens, and you guys know that very well. This morning, change is often painful. Um, Sometimes it's just the result of the passing of time. Sometimes it's brought about by by conflicts, by differences of opinion. And, uh, you know, I I can remember a time at Laura. I'd been there about 10 years, and things got really bad. It It was very, very difficult. We came that close to splitting. And, and, uh, there was a moment in my ministry where I told God in my prayer journal, I wrote my prayers out then, and I, I, I told God, dear Lord, I quit. I am out of here. And, you know, God listened to me very patiently, but I, I, I can't explain this except to say that he just would not let me leave. And, uh, you know, if I had left at that moment in time, I would have never seen the things that he was about to do in that church and the things that, that he did in the, in the next 
18 years. Eighteen? No, I'm, my math is out the window. So, um, from the, from that time until, yeah, eighteen. Um, but change happens, and I can tell you guys this morning that you know, and I don't know all the details of of everything that's happened here. I don't want to know, but I can tell you this: I believe that probably some of you are probably thinking, I can't see how this is going to have a good outcome. Um, you, you may not be able to wrap your head around what God is about to do, but I can guarantee you this. If you come back in five years or ten years, you will see the fruit that has been born by the difficulty that you have grappled with during this time. God is faithful. God is faithful and, and he leads us and we follow him and he will do what he has determined he's going to do. There's, there's no way that that is ever going to fail. I remember once hearing a, a message, and this was at a moment when I was really uh, struggling, and, and uh, I heard a, a message on five words from the Gospel of Matthew 16, verse 18. It was when Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock, five words, I will build my church. It won't perhaps look like what we expected it to look like. It won't happen maybe in the time frame that we wanted it to happen in. And, and it might not happen in the way that we want things to happen, but he will build his church. He is faithful. He's building here. He's building here in Versailles, Christian, even now. And, and I... I just pray that you'll grab hold of that, that promise of Jesus to, to his disciples and, and never let go and know that whatever he is bringing you through, um, it is all going to result in his glory and your best good. And uh, I hope that you'll, you'll remember that as the days unfold. Please bow with me as we pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I, I thank you for the faithfulness that you have shown uh, not only to us, but throughout the centuries. Lord, uh, oftentimes when conflict arose, it was the, the kind of conflict that brought about 